Welcome, everyone, to a special episode of the Film Illiterate Podcast. I am Joe, and with me is Nate. Hey, everyone. How's it going? And I, I you, know, you know what? I feel like I always say it's a special episode of the Film Illiterate Podcast, but like, you well, know. Well, every, every episode's a special episode, Joe, if it, you think about it. If, but if every episode is special, then no one will it's be. Still, it's just the American way, you know? Everyone's a winner. Uh, yeah, I was trying to sneak in a little a little Incredibles reference there, but exactly. Uh, today, though, we are going to be doing a special director spotlight episode where we're going to be talking about a certain director's body of uh, a few movies out of his body of work, talking about the history of the director and just some other uh, interesting an interesting discussion. So today we're going to be talking about Orson Welles. Yes. And to lead us off, we have our resident Orson Welles expert, Nate, is going to be leading this discussion because, Nate, I'm, I must say, you know quite a, mu- quite a lot more about Orson Welles than I do and are more familiar with him, I'm sure. Well, I'm not like saying I'm trying to be obsessed with Orson Welles or maybe I have like a fascination with the guy, but he... Eh, just a little bit. A little bit. I might have to admit I have a problem, you know. <laughs> you, you have you have an oversaturation of Orson Welles, but there well, is a lot of Orson Welles to go around. Exactly. So. You know, you can never get enough Orson Welles because there's always <laughs> a little bit of some for everybody. So, yes. So I guess I'll take it from here, Joe. Um, yep. Your show. Uh, see you guys later. I'm out. Yeah, so he he won't be joining us at all for this is all gonna be me now. <laughs> Come to the Infamous Podcast if you want to hear Nathan talk to himself about Orson Wells for an hour. Well, that actually sounds like what I do all the time, though. I, I, I that sounds me on an everyday Just you basis. Sitting sitting in an empty room talking yeah. to yourself about. Orson I, I'm Wells. already kind of setting the stage of what this is going to be like, folks. So if you can handle this cool anyway take us away nate uh let's get into our film literate spotlight episode orson wells all right as joe's mentioned this is a special director spotlight on um orson wells and the reason why i've always liked orson wells is because he for me has been kind of one of those filmmakers that has paved a lot for just cinema in general. Everyone kind of knows him because of Citizen Kane, his famous War of the Worlds broadcast, as well as Touch of Evil. But I think people tend to forget how much this man has actually brought to cinema in general. He's known and kind of recognized as a pioneer in the indie filmmaking uh, community as well. And so today I decided to uh, pick three films for us to look at that kind of like almost uh, looks at the man's life in general. There won't be the typical Orson Welles films that everyone's familiar with, but there are three that I think actually kind of stand out and should be kind of acknowledged for what this man has done. And those three films that we, Joe and I both watched this week are The Magnificent Embersons, Chimes at Midnight, and F for Fake. So let's, uh, let's jump right in. So Joe, what is your familiarity with Orson Welles? How much do you know about him? Just kind of off, off the bat. I actually... I'm not terribly familiar with Orson Welles, which is uh, surprising mm-hmm. considering, uh, you know, you know, both of us went to the same film school and I have kind of this this love of movies in general. But I just I, I never got into Orson Welles. Yeah, it, it's, it's for a lot of uh, film students. I always kind of know it's like it's like when you're introduced to him with Citizen Kane, it's a film that everybody watches who goes into film. Um, it's either it makes or breaks a lot of people. Either people find it fascinating or people are like, yeah, okay. It was a film. I'm yeah, done. Yeah, just 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 off the top of my head, I think the only ones I've seen of his uh, up until I watched the three we're talking about today have been Citizen Kane and The Trial. And The Trial, if everyone remembers, was a movie we talked about for a previous film literates video several years back. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I haven't seen Touch of Evil. I haven't seen quite a few of his stuff. I think I'm more familiar with him just kind of as a historical figure in the film world and i i recognize his influences and what he's done for film history but just as a director he's never been one that's personally interested me i've always been more into you know joe dante sam raimi those kind of more energetic 80s directors and i just really need to expand my orson welles filmography just knowing what he's done for for film history well, that was a good example or reason why I decided to kind of like do this on Orson Welles was just to give a chance of like for you and everyone else uh, a chance to see what this guy has done and what he's even known for. Um, for me, I've kind of think ever since I kind of seen uh, Citizen Kane or even start to get into filmmakers at a very young age of 18, Wells was just one of those guys that fascinates me because his style is very defiant and it's very 
experimentive as well, for even for its time. Like he was taking a lot of risks, a lot of things that a lot of people weren't necessarily doing back in the day. And just kind of to explore this man and what he has kind of done and what people recognize or remember him for and how this also tells about his life and his career has just been something I wanted to always kind of do here on The Film Illiterates. And also in light of, you know, the recent film that came out, produced by Netflix, The Other Side of the Wind, if anyone's not familiar, The Other Side of the Wind was a film that Orson Welles was working in his later years before passing away, where he had, you know, guys like Peter Bodanovich, um, John Huston acting as these characters. And just recently, Netflix was able to produce this film and finish it finally, and people have had a chance to see it. So in kind of light of that, this is kind of like a chance for anyone who's not still familiar with Orson Welles to know a bit more about him. But I've kind of stalled enough. Let's dig right into it. At a very young age, Orson Welles always was very fascinated with the theater. And in fact, he always tried to be one of the most impressive kids in the room. Um, People have actually commented on that his mother would always tell him, children should always have something very impressive or interesting to say, or be retired to the nursery. So at a very young age, Orson Welles was always trying to stand out in some way or another. So going to grammar school and boarding school. He worked in the theater. He basically put on his own little productions of Shakespeare. He even got the chance to travel to Ireland at 16 and try to dupe a theater company troupe in uh, Dublin, Ireland, that he was a famous New York actor. And that's how he was able to kind of like get into that acting troupe and make his way up the rungs of the ladder. Um, And this is something that He's always been doing all of his life, working his way up to when he finally was able to go back to New York, and he founded the Mercury Theater Company. Now, the Mercury Theater Company was a radio as well as a theater um, troupe, a bunch of actors and friends of his who would put on these productions. And at the time, radio was just a new thing, and he was getting a lot of praise for just a lot of the productions, and he was a busy man in New York. I don't know if you know about this, Joe, but he would be working like two shows at a time. And one time, he basically, during the intermission of one show, he would take an ambulance bus and get to his next production in time. Because back then, there was no law saying you you couldn't travel by ambulance. So that's how he was able to get to and from in the traffic in New York. And I presume it was at this time that he kind of got a a, a fascination with Shakespeare that will lead to one of the movies we're going to talk about later. Yeah, well, I think ever since he was young, like a very young kid, he was well versed in Shakespeare. Um, So yes, we will be getting into that later. Um, But this was like, yes, he would put on productions and these new kind of productions of Shakespeare. Um, One that while he was working with the Mercury Theater that got him such, you know, huge cloud was a early version of Macbeth that he set in Haiti. So this was actually one of the first productions of its time in Broadway that had a full um, African-American cast because all of them were set in Haiti with, you know, the witches being these voodoo priestess and everybody loved the play. They kept calling it, you know, this is high energy. There's a lot of just new stuff that, you know, Orson Welles is doing with Shakespeare. And that's what kind of got his name really big in New York while he was still an actor, producer of these productions. Um, This would later trail into his Mercury Theater radio broadcast company, which would lead on to him producing on one of the most infamous broadcasts of all time, The War of the Worlds. Yeah, actually, interesting about War of the Worlds, I I forgot to mention this beforehand, I have heard the radio broadcast War of the Worlds. When I was a kid, my parents had a record of it, actually, that I used to play every once in a while, and that was that was something that 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 always fascinated fascinated me especially the history behind it and the reaction that people had to it and how everyone kind of took it seriously yeah it was almost kind of like the perfect storm for its day and age because what orson welles was kind of noticing even back at this point is so many people were believing everything that was coming from the radio that he realized Anything could be said on the radio if it was done right, and people would believe it as truth. And that's a very whole, entertaining listen too. It is a very entertaining. Like you, you actually listen to how much attention to details they put into the script of that. Like it, it would not actually sound like an actual like fictional drama. Like it would almost sound like an actual broadcast, and you'd have all these interruptions that were happening, and then suddenly the radio would go out, and you think something happened. And then when they're saying over at uh, Grover's Mill, there's these, you know, Martians that are coming out of the ground and they're zapping people and you hear the sound cut out. It would freak people out. But funny fact, actually, about that production, there's a lot of historians who said this scared half of the East Coast and everyone was into panic mode thinking they were invaded. 
it was actually blown out of proportion. There was actually not that many people who got freaked out by this. Just a few small communities, districts that were chiming into the radio. Um, but it did get enough attention for the newspaper headlines to wire this to Hollywood. And this is actually what got Hollywood's attention and wanted to hire on Orson Welles to start producing films for them. So after this little incident that he's so famous known for, RK Radio Productions hired him on for a three-picture deal. And he was set to make a couple of films with them in the course, I believe, between 1938 and 1945. Now, a couple of productions that he had in the works that he really wanted to do, one of them being Heart of Darkness uh, from the Joseph Conrad book. Um, of course, that was a failed production. And so they tried to go on to the next scene, which originally was going to be a biopic of Howard Hughes. However, at the time, they didn't want to get into trouble with Howard Hughes, so they switched it to Citizen Kane, which everyone is familiar of. Kind of tackles one of the biggest tycoons at the time, William Randolph Hearst. Yeah, and and Citizen Kane. Uh, just to touch on that briefly, it's a, it it I I I recognize how dynamic it is, and the comparisons to Howard Hughes is kind of fascinating. I never I never really thought of it honestly until I watched F for Fake, and they covered Citizen Kane a little bit in there. And I realized, holy crap, it's covering similar territory. Yep. Uh, but the, the the Citizen Kane itself never really captured my attention outside of a historical context, which might explain why I never really got into Orson Welles as a director. But I recognize a lot of the strides he made, especially with lighting and camera angles, and a lot of the uh, the the unconventional ways that he shot that movie. Yep. Um, pretty much what people have actually said is that every camera and technique and f trick in the book has all originated from Citizen Kane. A lot of stuff that is now today used in Hollywood productions all came from this film. And Joe, you made a good comment that one of the greatest uh, film techniques that they developed for this film was shooting the low angles and showing the ceilings. Back in the day and age, you would never really show a ceiling because that's where all the lighting rigs were. Everything was shot in the studio, and that's where pretty much all the lights were. To kind of shoot that and expose that would just be a huge pain in the neck for the crew and the camera people and the lighting people to go around and, you know, light. But Orson Welles wanted to really show Citizen Kane as being this giant, that you looked up to him, that you saw him towering over you. Um, so you're right. There was a lot of grounds that were broken with Citizen Kane. And even though... The rumor has it William Hurst tried to do everything in his power to shut down this production, um, you know, kind of write these bad reviews of the film even before it came out, just to swayed people away from seeing it. It didn't stop it from actually becoming one of the most memorable and successful films of 1941. So, yeah, kind of goes to show that Orson Welles was willing to take risks and be daring of his, of his time, even if it meant costing his career. But let's actually sway away from Citizen Kane and go into the film that actually did cost him his career, or part of his career, which is the second film he did with RK Radio called The Magnificent Ambersons. The magnificence of the Ambersons began in 1873. Their splendor lasted throughout all the years that saw their Midland town spread and darken into a city. In that town in those days, all the women who wore silk or velvet knew all the other women who wore silk or velvet. And everybody knew everybody else's family horse and carriage. So just to give a quick overview of what the Magnificent Embersons looks at, um, it follows this one family, um, very rich American family living in the Midwest, who has a suitor who is trying to win the heart of the young heiress of the family for the Embersons. Um, this man played by Joseph Cotton, who is one of the... Um, basically entrepreneurs who's leading the automobile industry back in the day. Now, as the movie goes on, the son is trying to stop Joseph Cotton from winning the heart of his mother to the point where his family is starting to face financial ruin. And we begin to witness not only the decline of the family, but the de decline of their wealth and the success of a way of life in American history. Um, so Joe, you had never heard or seen this movie before. We had watched it, right? No, well, I, I, I'd heard the title before, but I knew nothing about it. So going into this one, I was more or less completely blind. And the first thing that caught my attention is that that is one hell of a way to open your movie. It, oh, it's, yes. It's eye-catching. Mm -hmm. It goes by quickly. It's entertaining. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. The mm -hmm. whole uh, history of our main character as he's this snotty little kid, <laughs> I, 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 just, I just love that opening and 
my 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 memory my, my memory went back to Citizen Kane because I remembered some of the dynamic shots that Orson Welles did mm-hmm. in that movie and the opening to the Magnificent Ambersons and a lot of this movie kind of throughout is full of that. But for me, uh, the, the a lot of the movie the movie the movie was interesting and it's well done, but it, nothing really grabbed my attention as much as that opening and the long the you know you know the more it went on the longer it kind of felt. But I I love how thematically he brings everything around. I love that it's a movie about charity, especially charity towards uncharitable people. And uh, it's about insolence. And the the whole movie is kind of fascinating if you look at it in that light. I just wish that the whole movie had been as dynamic as that opening. George Amberson Minifer, the major's one grandchild, was a princely terror. Hey! Why... Golly, I guess you think you own this town. There were people, grown people they were, who expressed themselves longingly. They did hope to live to see the day, they said, when that boy would get his comeuppance. His what? His comeuppance. Something's bound to take him down someday. I only want to be there. So you're right. The opening is probably the one part I loved the most because a lot of how it was edited, how the... The, the the conversations of the townspeople as they're talking about the Embersons kind of reminded me a lot of, I don't know why, but a lot of how Scorsese edits his movies when he's trying to kind of like cut through exposition really quick and how he'll have one cut going from one to the next. It kind of felt like, you know, Orson Welles was just, you know, a, a pioneer in that, in his storytelling. Um, and how, you know, and that's actually one aspect about the Magnificent Embersons that seems to be have taken away from it is just how the town plays a part in this story, you know, the gossip that goes around, how the town itself comes into financial ruin after when the automobile industry comes into full swing. But interesting enough, Joe, I didn't know, did you realize that this is actually not the full version of the Embersons that Orson Welles originally had intended? No, I didn't. I I, I know, talk, I think I texted you when I was probably about halfway through the movie, mm-hmm. and I was talking about how much I was enjoying the movie, and you, you, you made some comment about how the movie was plagued with production issues. Now, I haven't done any research into it, but uh, that, that, that kind of fascinated me because the movie felt like a complete movie, more or less, and I didn't notice anything off about it. Oh, by the way, I just want to mention real quick, mm-hmm. that set for the house with the stairwell uh, that's an amazing set. It goes yes. up like three stories tall. Oh, no. Yeah, there's one shot in this film where you actually get kind of like a, a tilt and a pan of that center stairwell and seeing like all the different level stories. And this was an actual house that they had built on set. What's kind of cool about this house as well is they went on to serve as like, you know, um, productions for other horror films that they were able to repurpose for. So it, it was a huge extensive project. That house was probably the most expensive part of the production. But funny thing enough is the reason why I said the movie was plagued with production issues is because when Orson Welles had completed his first version of it, RK Radio hated it. In fact, they were able to screen it to a couple of test audiences who all walked out. It wasn't very commercial, as they kind of put it. And that was the biggest issue that RK Radio had at the time with this movie is they wanted to salvage it since at the time, this was probably the most expensive you know, production to date, um, do you, do you, do you know why it didn't play well? Was it just 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 kind of the fact that it's about a a kid in more more or less a dating competition with his mom? Well, they see that was a storyline that RK Radio wanted to you know promote more about the film because oh, okay. the the actual story of the Ambersons is more than just the family, but it's also the town that goes through this decline as well. So originally when RK Radio had this reaction from the test audiences, they had to go back and recut it and basically reshoot the ending scene. So a total of 45 minutes are missing from the original film that Orson Welles had intended to show. Now, when you talk about the ending and with exposition, are you talking about specifically the scene where he's kneeling next to the bed? No, I'm actually talking about the hospital scene. So in the movie, uh, there's a scene with Joseph Cotton and Agnes Moorhead walking after seeing George in the hospital. That was actually never intended in the original um, script that Orson Welles had written. The dialogue is still the same, but what it was actually supposed to be said in 
was a boarding house that Agnes Moorhead's character, who goes crazy at the very end and has to basically resort to going to a boarding house where she's alone, she has nowhere else to go, and Joseph Kahn comes to visit her to let her know how George is doing. Orson Welles wanted that to be the original ending for the film. But when it was tested with audiences, they felt it was too depressing. Well, so that's interesting what you say about the endings, especially because one thing that I noted was that The Magnificent Ambersons does have a rather somber ending. And I felt like it would have been easy for the movie to kind of have an ironic bite to it. For instance, one of my favorite things was talking about when, when Orson Welles mentions in his narration that George Amberson finally got the comeuppance that the people at the beginning mm-hmm. were wishing for him, but nobody was around to see it. Something had happened, a thing which years ago had been the eagerest hope of many, many good citizens of the town. And now it came at last. George Amberson Miniford had got his comeuppance. He got it three times filled and running over. Those who had so longed for it were not there to see it. They never knew it. Those who were still living had forgotten all about it and all about him. Now it is kind of a downbeat idea, but it's fascinating about th- wishing ill on someone else. And mm-hmm. then when they finally get what's coming to them, well, no one's really around to appreciate that. And it's talking about being charitable to other people. But you're right in that it feels like they kind of tack on a kind of happy-ish ending that really comes out of nowhere. And that's going back to this whole thing, how RK Radio wanted it to be a bit more of a commercial success as opposed to what Orson Welles was trying to give them, which would have been a masterpiece. So, and a reason why RK Radio was also able to get away with kind of editing it the way they did, taking a lot of Orson Welles' vision out of the picture is Orson Welles was commissioned at the time to travel to Brazil to shoot this um, for kind of like at the time there was the good neighbor policy that America had. And he was trying to basically do this production while they were basically recutting and reshooting his film. And then RK Radio kind of went through this whole stunt of trying to make Orson Welles feel like he was the person at fault for how the Ambersons turned out. They made a great publicity of the point of the fact that I had gone to South America without a script and thrown all this money away. That, I never recovered from that, uh, from that attack. So the fact that they had also, they had promised me when I went to South America that they would send a moviola and cutters to me and that I would finish the cutting of Ambersons there. They never did. They cut it themselves. So they destroyed Ambersons and the picture itself destroyed me. I was, uh, I didn't get a job as a director for years after. In the end, it just only created bad blood they kind of stained Wells's reputation all throughout Hollywood as this director who is just impossible to work with. He's incapable of working with. He'll never actually deliver for you. And that's the reason why for the next five years, Orson Welles would probably never work on another film or direct another film um, for Hollywood. He went on to do some acting, but it would be a long time before he could get the permission or even the cloud again as a director. Well, and that leads us into our next movie, Chimes at Midnight, which from what I understand, he had quite a struggle to get this movie made uh, across his whole life up to that point. Is that correct? Yes. So a little history with Chimes at Midnight, if anyone's not familiar. Chimes at Midnight is actually a a passion project of Orson Welles that he always wanted to do on one of the characters found in the first and second parts of Henry IV, whose name was Sir John Falstaff. Now, Sir John Falstaff, Uh, is basically a drunken bard, old retired knight, who lives off of debauchery, telling jokes, lying, cheating, basically having a merry good time with his friend, who is uh, Prince Hal, and who goes on later to be King Henry V. Um, They were best friends. And it tells the story of how these two basically had this camaraderie, which eventually has to go its separate way and split apart as Prince Hal becomes King Henry V and leads England to its success. So this was a project that Orson Welles, from a very young age, he always wanted to make. And as I mentioned, Orson Welles has always had this fascination with Shakespeare. But he wanted to give due justice to this character, Falstaff. Now, Orson Welles has actually kind of claimed that while 
Hollywood likes to make stories and retell stories. It has always had a problem with Shakespeare and bringing it to the mass audiences. So that was another reason why, just even all throughout Wells's life, he went on to do other, you know, film adaptations of Macbeth and Othello, which Hollywood was still not willing to fund it for. He basically had to find new and creative and innovative ways to make these productions work. Um, with this one in particular, Orson Welles actually had to go all the way to Spain to promise these two investors that he was willing to make them a production of Treasure Island, which is actually what the funding went to for the inn scenes. So there's a large inn where most of the film is shot. That inn was going to be used for the Treasure Island film, which he actually ended up using for this film instead. So this would be another kind of a interesting tactic that Orson Welles would be doing constantly throughout his films, where he'd be promising these investors for one thing, but doing something else. And... Chimes at Midnight came out a little over 20 years after The Magnificent Ambersons. So across this time, he's he, he he's had, Orson Welles has had a chance to evolve as a filmmaker. He's changed his style a little bit. He's been, I mean, I mean. He's changed his size as well. <laughs> just a little bit. A My little gosh, bit. is he enormous in Chimes at Midnight. And that's actually one thing I love about this film is that Orson Welles is very aware that he is corpulent and that he is big. And he has so many scenes in this movie that make fun of that. And I think they are some of the best scenes of the film. Uh, there's a scene where I think you saw this, Joe, at the beginning of the battle where they have to hoist the knights onto their steeds with these like little swings. And it, they're just trying to get Orson Welles off the ground. And they ended up, like because of his weight, buckling and dropping him flat on his butt. Oh, that's great. I love his sense of humor, especially in, in this movie. And that was actually something I wanted to actually talk about. A lot of people sometimes have this perception of Orson Welles being a very dominating, very tyrannical, very obnoxious guy. But actually, actors who've worked really close with him, who've actually enjoyed his company, always said he was actually one of the most well-respected directors to actually be around. Because Orson Welles, being an actor himself, he understood how to work with actors. He understood how to bring out their best performances. He would not try to micromanage or even dictate how their performances should be, sometimes if it called for it, of course. But he would always give that permission for them to deliver the lines as they would as their characters. And that's one reason why I think a lot of people who stayed really close with him always enjoyed working on films with him. Thou hast done much harm upon me, Hal. God forgive me for it. Before I knew thee, Hal, I knew nothing. And now, um, if a man should speak truly, little better than one of the wicked. I was as virtuously <laughs> given as a gentleman need to be, virtuous enough, swore a little, dice not above seven times a week, went to a bawdy house, not above once a quarter of an hour. Villainous company has been the spoil of me. If I have not forgotten what the inside of a church is made of, call me a peppercorn, a brewer's horse. I, I'll, I'll admit, it took me some time to get into this movie because it's almost two hours long and it's completely Shakespearean dialogue. It's uh, adapted from several different Shakespeare plays taking scenes and molding it into one movie surrounding Falstaff, the character. And I loved Shakespeare. Henry V was one of my favorite movies for quite a while. That's when I felt like that movie did a good job of getting across Shakespearean dialogue in a very engaging way. Chimes of Midnight fascinated me because it, it works basically as a prequel to Henry V, just focusing on Falstaff. And the guy who plays... Harry in Chimes at Midnight looks and acts a lot like how Kenneth Branagh plays him in Henry V, which was kind of entertaining to watch. Yeah, it's almost kind of like probably Kenneth Branagh was also inspired by how he portrayed Henry V from uh, Keith Baxter, who plays Prince Hal in this version. And that was actually something I wanted to actually comment on, uh, Joe, is that actually Keith Baxter, he not only played like the lead role of Prince Hal, but he was willing to actually act as like uh, these assistant lead extras to help, you know, wrangle all the other extras in the other scenes. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, so there'd be um, scenes where you might see a soldier or even just like additional voices and you think to yourself that sounds like a, a Keith Baxter well that's because it is Keith Baxter uh, looking at this as a Shakespeare adaptation one of the things I love about Henry V is how engaging the movie is and how Kenneth Branagh makes you get pulled into the Shakespearean dialogue and it's, it makes it more accessible I think to a lot of people but Chimes at Midnight is interesting because the movie is visually engaging, and it's got a lot of Orson Welles's very dynamic touches, and I love the way this movie looks. 
but the 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 dialogue to me at least felt like it was delivered kind of in your stereotypical Shakespearean actor way. Um, it, it, it's it's it's. I mean, it sounded great, but it didn't sound like they were trying to do anything necessarily terribly different with it. It felt like stage actors who were used to delivering Shakespearean dialogue in an over the top way were delivering it as they would on stage. Exactly. Now kind of interesting thing and joe maybe you kind of noticed this a lot of the lip syncing felt off in this film oh yes i i noticed that that's actually another trademark of a, quite a few orson welles films i don't know if you know about orson welles would never actually really use the audio from the live recording on set he would always call in the actors to dub over and do adr for their audio afterwards or after the fact well and, and, that, and that became distracting for me uh, mm-hmm. a couple of scenes where orson welles is talking and it's so obvious that he dubbed his voice over. Yep. So that, that is something I noticed. Yeah, and a big reason for that as well is Orson Welles had very limited time to actually work on this film. I think I was actually looking at something, and he had so many days that he could actually work with the actors before they would have to go off to other productions. So a lot of like what you kind of hear, a lot of what you see, they really just did not have the time to mic it, especially for some of those impressive sweeping camera angles that you see throughout, you know, in the inn, in the battle scenes, uh, just throughout the whole production. To kind of mic something like that with the time that he had would have been almost impossible. You're looking at maybe just doubling the time to do that. So that's another reason why Orson Welles would not really heavily mic his sets, but would mostly do it in ADR after the fact, which you're right, there is a bit of a disconnect and a you don't feel as fully engaged with the film when that kind of comes into a factor. Honestly, it never felt like a low-budget, rushed movie to me. And I did do a little bit of reading on the making of this movie and how he struggled to get it done. And it's it, it's incredible how cinematic it looks, considering all of that, all the all the troubles he went through and all the workarounds he had to make doing this, because the movie does feel like an evolution of his previous style in Magnificent Ambersons and Citizen Kane, it, 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 Chimes at Midnight uh, feels like the natural progression of where mm-hmm. he started off with those exactly. movies. And I think what's kind of cool, and I actually want to bring a little bit, this little bit of trivia into this, uh, but let's talk about that battle sequence. Um, the way this battle sequence was shot is something like we had never, ever seen before. Well, uh, yes, compared to anything we've seen before. Uh, since we're talking about Shakespeare, I'm talking about Henry V, though. It's interesting because it looks a lot like the battle scene in Henry V, which was about 20 years later. Yeah, well, Kenneth Branagh actually credited that he borrowed how Orson Welles shot his battle sequence for this, for that movie, for Henry V. And a funny reason why Orson Welles had shot the battle sequences like this, where you start off with, you know, these charging knights and then quickly just getting and slimming down to just these tight shots of these knights fighting with each other in the mud, stabbing each other, doing these quick cuts, these quick slashes is because Orson Welles was gradually, as he was shooting this uh, battle scene, was losing extras. He started off with 120 on the first day. It came down to almost like 40 on the last day. So Orson Welles had to find a quick, innovative way to, how do I show a, a full battle when I only have 40 extras? So this was a workaround he found. And because of that, a lot of um, film productions since then have copied this style. You see it in you know films like Henry V, Braveheart, even Gladiator, where you get really tight with how the actors are fighting each other in the scene to the point where you don't need the grand scale battle um, shots like you would have in something like Spartacus or even Ben-Hur. Like That has now been shortened and even just much more condensed into something like this. It, it paved the way for cinema and changed how, you know, historic battles are shot now. And I'm sure he caught people's attention with the escalated violence too. Mm-hmm. That's something I, 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 don't, I don't know if it's just because it was black and white, but some of those shots, with, you know, blood pouring out people's faces caught me by surprise. <laughs> I know, it was pretty gory for its day and age. Like you would never see something like that. I, I guess this is the 60s and, you know, more we're getting, we're getting into the territory of anything goes at that point. But still, I don't know, it, it, it feels like an old school Shakespearean mm-hmm. movie. And all of a sudden just, you know, some guy with his face hacked open stumbles into the frame.
but let's actually I want to talk a little bit about the acting in this um kind of like as you mentioned Joe like a lot of the actors felt like they're kind of delivering these stage versions of you know Shakespeare it didn't feel as organic but I honestly would disagree with Orson Welles's portrayal of Falstaff in my opinion I think this is the best acting Orson Welles has done in his entire career more so. Oh, and I would agree with you there. Actually, the, the 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 one person in the movie who didn't feel like they were just delivering a staged version of that the the different Henry the Fourth plays put together was Orson Welles, and I I I am firmly believe this was the role he was destined to play. Yep. Uh, in in this movie especially, but throughout his career, whenever you see Orson Welles on screen, there's a bit of a a twinkle in his eye. You feel like the the guy has a sense of humor about himself and about the characters he's portraying but in this one that 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 twinkle is just escalated up to 11 and you believe he is Falstaff exactly and I think that's the reason why he was so he was so fascinated with the character um is because he had such empathy for Falstaff he understood where Falstaff came from I remember when I was uh, studying Shakespeare in school a lot of people would portray Falstaff as like this man of sin you know this man who was debauchery he was you know cheating he was lying he was betrayal and that's how he's always been color-coded Orson Welles saw the opposite he saw that this man represented merry old England he understood what Falstaff he was a time he was a different time in England that had basically was going to be left in the snow is going to be left in the dust and kind of i want to actually go back a little bit into orson welles history but there's something about the betrayal scene at the very end where prince hal has to basically banish falstaff from his sight in order to go on to be king that kind of resonates a little bit with orson welles in his life um orson welles actually had a drunken father himself at a very young age and orson welles before being taken away into the custody of his mother, had to basically carry around his drunken father from, you know, one town to the next, to the point where his mother had to tell him, you have to make a decision and you have to leave your father in the state he is. And Orson Welles, at a very young age of 11, had to make that decision, just like Prince Hal, and abandon his father. And days later found out that his drunken father died. And so I think what Orson Welles is not only bringing to this character is empathy, but he resonates with him so much. And especially in this life, it feels like you're right, Joe, he was leading up to this point in his career. And that is why I think that end scene with the banishment of Falstaff is one of the most heartbreaking scenes I've ever seen in any Shakespeare production. It's not big and spectacle, and it's nothing like you know a huge grade of acting. It's just one look from Orson that I think just breaks people's hearts. Make less thy body hence and more thy grace. Leave gormandizing. Now the grave doth cape for thee thrice wider than for other men. <laughs> Apply not to me with a fool-born jest. Presume not that I am the thing I was. For God doth know, so shall the world perceive, that I have turned away my former self. So will I those that kept me company. When thou dost hear I am as I have been, approach me, and thou shalt be as thou wast, the tutor and the feeder of my riots. Till then, I banish thee on pain of death, as I have done the rest of my misleaders, not to come near our person by ten miles. Confidence of life, I will allow you, but lack of means and force you not to evil. And as we hear you do reform yourselves, we will, according to your strength, and qualities give you advancement. Be at your charge, my lord, to see perform the tenor of our word. Well, his performance in that scene is excellent. The way the the way that his face just kind of falls as he's listening to Prince Hal deliver those lines, telling him, you know, get the hell out of here, basically. But 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 more so than just like you know, his face falls and it's heartbroken. But there's this smile, knowing. That Prince Hal is going to be what he's always meant to be, and he. Oh yeah. And there's almost like this uh, kindred fatherly spirit coming through, where you see Falstaff understanding why Hal's doing, and he couldn't be prouder of Prince Hal making that decision, even though. Yeah, there's a lot. Of, there's, there's a lot of nuance in that look. There's so much nuance, and like you said, it's it's probably some of the best acting Orson Welles has ever done, and. I think that's the reason why I picked this movie for us to watch is because you can see not only Orson Welles' love for the character, but how Orson Welles is bringing his all 
to this character. And uh, uh, do you think that playing Falstaff is one of the reasons why he gained so much weight later in life was just so that he could play this one role? Oh, no, the, the man has an incredible appetite. He, he is known to eat like almost like, uh, gosh, like almost like <laughs> six meals in one time. The, the guy ate a lot. Orson Welles can also uh, drink wine and review wine, or not not, not review wine, but uh, uh, promote wine on TV <laughs> while being drunk on the same wine. <laughs> uh, look up, look up, look up uh, uh, Orson Welles wine commercial outtakes. It's it's great. It's fantastic. <laughs> you gotta love the man for just being a huge connoisseur of wine because it it just makes it a lot more entertaining. <laughs> a huge connoisseur of wine. Okay, I'm done. I'm gonna get us in trouble. Beethoven, <laughs> four years to write that symphony. Some things can't be rushed. Good music and good wine. Paul Masson's Emerald Dry. A delicious white wine. Paul Masson wines taste so good because they're made with such care. What Paul Masson himself said nearly a century ago is still true today. We will sell no wine before it's time. Let's go ahead and move on then to the last movie we're going to be talking about, which is the one that fascinated me most considering its relation in the way it's made to the other side of the wind, which is the most recent one that I'd watched. Yes. So this is actually the one film that a lot of, you know, fans of Orson Welles just adore to death just because of the new grounds it was breaking. So the film that we're going to be talking about next is F for Fake. Ladies and gentlemen, by way of introduction, this is a film about trickery and fraud, about lies. Almost any story is almost certainly some kind of lie. But not this time. No, this is a promise. During the next hour, everything you'll hear from us is really true and based on solid facts. You're talking about Elmir. Elmir? Elmir? Who is Elmir? I am not a professional actor. He's a leading actor in this movie. His profession, it's true, is painting, painting fakes. Elmir's a true faker. Here, for instance, is a Van Dungen by Elmir. Van Dungen studied it carefully and then swore that he painted it himself. He's now known as the greatest art forger in the world. Well, I don't admit anything I just talk about. Because he's scared. I mean, you know, there, there could be a jail sentence hanging. So, originally, Orson Welles was commissioned by Francois Reckenbeck to make this about, specifically, Elmio de Hore. But it's not just about Elmio de Hore. As it evolves, he also covers the life or even just the forgery of this other person who plays a part in the documentary, Clifford Irving. Now, Clifford Irving was a author who was also a, a hoax. Basically, he got this credit for writing a story or even a biography of Howard Hughes, which was never real in the first place. At the time when this was being filmed, it was uncovered that Clifford Irving had basically had forged this entire biography and none of it was true. Um, and so what Orson Welles ends up doing with this documentary is not make it just about one person, but a bunch of people who have had to lie their way to the top. Um, he even includes himself in the mix and documents a lot about his life, how he tried to lie as a 16-year-old in Ireland as an actor and just to get into theater. And even just going further than that to show how even experts themselves may not be honest in who they say they are, that they could be just lying through their teeth to just to impress people and make them make you think that they know what they're talking about. Yeah, to me, at least the movie felt like it was a commentary on manipulation in entertainment and storytelling more, more specifically, especially considering that this movie is a documentary. And for much of it, it feels like it was originally intended to be just kind of a biographical documentary about this famous art forger. But then the movie uses that as a jumping off point into talking about forgeries and fakery and manipulation in many forms of art, including writing biographies. And this movie, which is a documentary, eventually goes off on a tangent of storytelling related to this artist that is revealed to be a complete fabrication on the side of Orson Welles, showing how even a documentary can be manipulated to say whatever you want, which I thought was fascinating. And that's actually the one thing that so many people love about this documentary, and even just what Orson Welles is doing with this, is really just unveiling that curtain saying, even a documentary, which you think is all truth and fact, 
could be fabricated right before your eyes. That everything that you're seeing is all edited in a studio and set to give a final end product. I love how he begins this film with that statement. How, you know, he's it starts off with Orson Welles doing this magic trick for these little kids. And then right across the way, he shows, there's the film crew. This is all a set. I'm going to start uh, going into the actual thing. And that was actually, I think, what a lot of people love about this is how Orson Welles is not afraid to deconstruct the documentary. After your old tricks, I see. Why not? I'm a charlatan. What's that, sir? Did I used to be a magician? Sir, I'm still working on it. As for the key, it was not symbolic of anything. This isn't that kind of movie. You'll find the coin now in your pocket, sir. Keep your eyes on that coin, sir, while it's returned to you as your key. Shall we return you to your mother? Is this your mother? No, of course not. Open your mouth wide. We'll return you your money. By the way, have you ever heard of Robert Houdin? Speaking of magicians, I mean. Uh, no, of course not. But of course you do know my partner, Francois Reichenbach. Hello. Houdin was the greatest magician who ever lived. Do you know what he said? A magician, he said, is just an actor. Well, good luck to you. Just an actor, playing the part of a magician. I don't really know how to classify this 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 type of movie because mm. it isn't really a documentary. That no. that that would probably be the easiest yeah. way of of uh, categorizing it. I I think I read online somewhere that when Orson Welles was asked about what kind of a movie it is, he said something about something around on the lines of he was trying to forge a new kind of movie. Yeah, and that's actually something Orson Welles has always been doing throughout his career is finding these new ways of evolving the media a lot i think a lot of people have finally classified this as more of like a film essay as opposed to an actual documentary this is really orson welles giving a commentary as you said joe about the whole art of fakery how it not only exists in one facet but in different facets like you know an author can be a forger an artist could be a forger as a filmmaker can be a forger all of us are just tricking each other just to get what we want and that is just to manipulate you and to think we are the smartest people in the room um, and how he even just expounds that to experts and critics who may not be experts at all. They just pass themselves off as to be. Let's talk a little bit about the style here, because mm-hmm. uh, compared to Chimes at Midnight and Magnificent Ambersons, this movie is completely different yes. stylistically to those two movies. Yeah, I think actually someone had classified the editing style of this as um, attention deficit editing. It's very eclectic. It's all yeah. over the place and seemingly random in some of its cuts, but everything... The, the 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 movie as a whole is focused in uh, how it propels forward, but a lot of the shots he cuts to very quickly, you know, feel like they're just kind of cut here and there. Yeah, a lot of like what he kind of does throughout it is like he takes a lot of the interviews he's had with like Clifford Irving, with Elmire de Hore, even with um. There's several dinner conversations that he has with the guy who funded for this film, who helped direct this film, uh, Francois Rickenbeck, um, including just like how he would use even just sound bites and snippets of their interview to kind of like string together his chain of thought that he's going off of, even though that may have not been what the original interview was about. It kind of reminds me of some of these modern day, I don't know if you've watched any of these modern day uh, true crime documentaries, especially on Netflix. I was, I was, I was watching the other day, the, the new one they have on Ted Bundy recently. And the way he cuts together F for fake feels a lot like how a lot of those dramatic documentaries are cut where they use lots of different, little quick cuts and sound effects and interesting camera angles. Mm -hmm. Actually, one documentarian, which, you know, I'll kind of like wedge in here that this um, film kind of reminded me of was Michael Moore, Um, you know, the guy who's made films like, you know, Fahrenheit 9-11, Bowling for Curlbine, how he'll start off with trying to, you know, tackle this one subject of American history, but then tangent off something completely to serve his end point and how he'll sometimes take interviews or interactions or even facts out of context just to make that point. The the way this was edited, the way it kind of led to that uh, chain of thought kind of reminded me of how some documentarians kind of like will use that to their advantage. And I I hadn't seen this movie before I saw The Other Side of the Wind, Mm -hmm. which uh, for, for, for those who don't know, The Other Side of the Wind was 
a movie that Orson Welles had shot but never completed. And he he had edited some of it, but the vast majority of the movie had been left unfinished. And over the course of the past, what, 30 years, people have been trying to get it completed. And it wasn't only until recently that it was finished. A couple of insert shots were were captured. The soundtrack was done. The movie was cut together. And so when I saw The Other Side of the Wind, I I was confused because not having seen F for Fake and the, the only Orson Welles movie that I was really familiar with was The Trial and Citizen Kane. And this was completely different from those. It was very, very eye-catching. It was very fast-moving. It was very eclectic. And I just couldn't imagine how he got from Orson Welles to this in the 80s. And I was wondering how true that was to his style, considering that he wasn't around to edit quite a bit of the movie, but I did realize that he had left notes for how to put the movie together. Watching F for Fake, that all makes sense because this movie is cut very similarly to how that one was. And everyone has always known that Orson Welles was very heavily involved in the whole editing process with his later films. Like he'd actually be the, also the one to go back and do the sound mixing. With his background in radio, he would spend that time editing the sound, editing within the clips. So yeah, I think this is a true reflection of just um, also Orson Welles is just a pioneer in just editing as well. Like he was willing to experiment with these different styles. Um, not only just kind of like going off a of script, but even when there is no script, I don't know if you know about this, Joe, but the way that um, Other Side of the Wind was also shot was without a script. They pretty much were pretty much improvising a good portion of that film. They would come in knowing what they were going to shoot, but what they were going to say with the actors, that was completely, you know, off the page. And for anyone out there who uh, saw or was interested in The Other Side of the Wind, I highly recommend checking out the documentary that came with it, which is They'll Love Me When I'm Dead which chronicles Orson Welles' uh, journey towards trying to complete The Other Side of the Wind. And in my opinion, it's actually more interesting, more fascinating than The Other Side of the Wind is itself. Mm -hmm. I would actually highly recommend both of those films as well, both the documentary as well as The Other Side of the Wind. And what's, and what's really nice is before Other Side of the Wind was completed, this would have been Orson Welles' last completed picture, which I don't know, Joe, like if we never got to see The Other Side of the Wind, if we never got to see this documentary, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, would you have been satisfied as this being the, the final um, stone in uh, Orson Welles' career? Do you think that this would have left his career on a good mark? I, th I think it would have. I, I actually, I, actually, I might be saying something controversial here and saying I think I prefer Orson Welles' later filmography to his earlier work because i i think i resonated with f4 fake more than i did with something like chimes at midnight or magnificent ambersons or even orson wells and i'm wondering if part of that is because he was so forward thinking in the way he put that movie together because like i mentioned a lot of we've seen a lot of movies today cut together similarly to how f4 fake was cut together and i think orson wells was a very innovative director i think when he made Orson Welles, he was doing something that people hadn't really seen before. But then that kind of way of shooting and that kind of style almost became the norm in future decades. I think it's the same thing with F for Fake. What he did there was revolutionary then, but is commonplace now. And, and I can, I don't know if maybe I can relate to it more watching it now and i found it much more engaging and entertaining i actually will agree with you that i actually find myself loving orson welles's later stuff as well like everything that was kind of like after his um golden era of hollywood days when he started to do stuff after touch of evil even like for the trial and uh effort fake it's because you're right i think the true genius of orson welles is coming through and we actually really get to see that he was ahead of his time he was thinking of styles of filmmaking that were not even relevant of the time and him setting that path for people to follow i think is the true sign of his genius and what he's left behind for us in you know just cinema history um and and me personally like even if he if this movie f or fake was his last film i love the way he kind of is making this film essay about just not only about fakery but just the art of cinema and art in general there's a lot of um ending um uh, commentary, a lot of ending quotes that he throws at the very end that I just find very beautiful. There's that one he actually mentions about the, the church. There's a cathedral scene where he's talking that this is a cathedral with no 
um, artists to its building. There's no name to this, but it still stands and it's still here for people to admire. And that is probably the lasting impression that any artist can give on the face of this earth is maybe it's not the success of their lifetime, but the masterpiece that they leave for others to enjoy. You know, it might be just this one anonymous glory of all things, this rich stone forest, this epic chant, this gaiety, this grand choiring shout of affirmation, which we choose when all our cities are dust to stand intact, to mark where we have been, to testify to what we had it in us to accomplish. Yeah, I can only wonder if, if he was still around today, what kind of movies he would be making here in the 21st century and if he would still be paving the way for future styles of filmmaking. I, I'd be fascinated to see how, how he would have used digital editing and digital uh, filmmaking and where where he would have stood on the digital versus film debate. Honestly, I think because of the way how low budget it is, I think he would have brought back... Uh... I think he would have actually been the first person to actually revolutionize podcasting again and actually do, uh, you know, the, some of the stuff he did with the Mercury Theater back in his day. And that <laughs> the Orson Welles podcast. Yes, he would have actually. I would have that. That would have been something interesting to see if he had like gotten into that again and what he was able to bring to that. It might have just changed just uh, you know audio production and just podcasting different than what we're seeing today. That that would have been something that would have been a treat to see. I'm just saying if if, if Orson Welles in his prime were still around working today, because I mean if he was still alive today, he'd probably be too old to be making movies now. Oh, yeah. But if 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 he were alive and working today, I think that he would be closer along the lines of someone like uh, James Cameron, Robert Rodriguez, Steven Soderbergh in taking advantage of modern day technology and trying to move forward with it and do new things with it in his own way. Kind of a little something similar to what we kind of see with just Scorsese in his day and age, how Scorsese, even at his old age, is still being a huge pioneer of 3D filmmaking with storytelling and even just tackling with issues that are very relevant and even just challenging for people to talk about today. Um, yeah. So yeah. So if, in an over nutshell, Orson Welles has done a lot, I think, for cinema. And I think sometimes, even in his day and age, was overlooked for just a lot of what he was doing along the way. He has a, a vast filmography, and it's an impressive filmography as well. Like you mentioned, you saw uh, the Trial, one of his lesser known works, one of my favorite of his films. But there's also a touch of evil with just that opening scene. How you know we we are so blessed to actually get the version of Touch of Evil that Orson Welles intended audiences to see today because that opening scene with just the, when the the car and the bomb is planted inside and the tension that it builds throughout those five minutes is something that for its day and age would have never been considered or thought of. And it is such a great example of the man was forward thinking. He was willing to experiment, but willing to not compromise his style for what the studios wanted. Yep. I I I absolutely think that I need to see more Orson Welles movies. And uh, if you're mm -hmm. interested in film history, I absolutely recommend checking out some of his movies. Look through his entire filmography. Go watch some of his earlier work compared to his later work. He's just kind of a fascinating figure in film history and has mm -hmm. had a lot of influence on where we are today. And even for films that he just even acted in, and you'd still think, this feels like an Orson Welles picture. A good example of that is The Third Man. Um, that was definitely, he had nothing really to contribute to how that movie was made, other than just like one line of dialogue. Uh, but you can still see his influence on the way that director had shot that movie. And even that movie is still one of my favorites, um, not because of Orson Welles is in it, but because you can see his trademarks and the way scenes are lit had carried on and people were trying to emulate that. It's definitely a good example of, you know, his genius was recognized by those and even not recognized by those. Um, and it, he's just, he continues to fascinate me. I, I still, even in just doing this podcast, Joe, I learned so much more about Orson Welles than I did before. And I think I look forward to actually, as we continue with these, more of these director spotlights, uh, what we can learn more about directors, some of our favorites, some that we don't even know about, and seeing where that goes. Yeah, and we'll be having more of these coming up uh, in the future. For our, our next episode, we're going to be talking uh, about modern day movies, though, specifically the awards 
with the upcoming yes. Oscars. We'll be having an episode talking about uh, the Oscar race this year and some of the movies that are in that. And we'll come back with another director's spotlight at some point in the future. In the meantime, I think that'll wrap us up for this episode on Orson Welles, this large episode on Orson Welles. Yes, and I will keep to my promise, Joe, that I will not talk about Orson Welles again for the next two years. <laughs> you, we, you, we will never talk about Orson Welles ever again on Film Alert. <laughs> maybe I might mention him a little bit, but honestly, uh, I, 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 this was actually a podcast I've wanted to do for such a long time, so I appreciate that you were able to give us the spotlight. Oh, I'm glad we did, and it gave me it gave me an, an an excuse to really get into some Orson Welles movies, which again yeah. I, I I need to dive more into his movies. I still yeah. haven't seen Touch of Evil, which is a huge blind spot on my. I know. Website. I feel like if anything, probably after this, you should definitely go watch Touch of Evil right now and sit Abs- for that. Absolutely, right now. Right now. <laughs> anyway, uh, Nathan, where can people find you online? Well, obviously, they can find me here on uh, Film Illiterates. We're doing these podcasts on a regular basis, so that's somewhere you can hear my beautiful voice. Uh, but you can also find me on Instagram at Nathan Stone Films or just on Facebook in general. Uh, yeah, and Joe, where can we find you? You can find me at, I, I run the Film Illiterates uh, Twitter page, so that's uh, uh, at Film Illiterates. I also run the Facebook page there, but I'm not as active on Facebook as I am on Twitter. And of course, I run the uh, the YouTube channel, which we have a video in the works, which should be done in the next month, Ooh, hopefully. I'm excited to hear that. Yeah, it's Wonderful. Uh, not necessarily Valentine's Day themed, but uh, a little hint. It talks about one of Katie and mine uh, favorite on-screen movie couples. So, Would that be uh, Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn? You'll have to see later this month. Ooh, okay, <laughs> you're not going to surprise us. All right. Uh, in the meantime, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Film Illiterates Podcast. Uh, tune in whenever we get the next one done, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. And keep it easy. Bye.